The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So, uh, I grew up on family land. Anybody know what family land? Anybody know, like that's like land that your family's owned for a couple of generations or more, and you all just kind of live there still. Uh, so we it was a forty acre farm that my great grandfather owned, and he left uh, divided among his four kids, and so. Different parts of the family still lived there and still live there now or lived there as I was growing up. So, right beside my house was my grandfather's house. I could see his house outside my window. And just to give you a picture of kind of the, where I grew up and the way I grew up. So, I remember like multiple times when I'm younger, I'm laying in my bed. I could see up my window as I was laying in bed. I was supposed to be asleep. But I was laying in bed, looking at the window because it was still light outside because my parents made me go to bed early. And anyway, but I was looking out the, the window and I could see my granddad like, uh, Skinning and dressing the deer, like right out, right, right beside my house. So this is this is kind of this is kind of place I grew up in. And now, so back two fields behind our our house, my great uncle and great aunt lived, and they were an interesting pair. Then over here is where my cousin lived, and then I had another cousin who lived over here, and he had a a sawmill, a lumber mill, where he would like he made it himself, and he would cut lumber. And then over here, right beside our house. Other side of my granddad, we lived in the middle, was my great aunt or my great aunt, depending on whether you're where you're from. And my great aunt lived over here, and she lived in sort of a semi-dilapidated house right beside us. So the, the only thing that stood between our house and her house was the chicken coop. Am I cluing you in on kind of the, the way I grew up? All right, so the chicken coop was between my house and her house. And uh, one summer, when I was about five or six years old, we started a, a, a ritual. Uh, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I'd go out in the morning, and I remember. Uh, Summer mornings, the dew is still in the grass, and uh, you know how like when you walk through the dewy grass and it's kind of high, and it, it like the water gets all over your your legs and your shoes, and those little weeds that have like the the Y, the V shape on the top, you know, like they have all those black seeds on it, and they they get on your your legs. And I remember outside playing, and I don't remember how it happened at first, but she invited me to come over uh, to her house, and she made for me cheese toast. Uh, uh, cheese toast. Cheese toast made out of government block cheese. Anybody? Know, you don't have to raise your hand if you know what that is. But she she would cut off a slice of government block cheese, put it on the bread, toast it, and then I would sit down and she would pour me coffee. Now, it probably wasn't like coffee like you and I would think of coffee. It was instant coffee with a lot of milk and a lot of sugar. And I thought that was just the, 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 the government block cheese toast and this instant coffee with loads of sugar and milk in it. I just thought that was the best thing in the world. I love, So every single morning, I'd go out and play, and she'd bite me over, and I'd go in, and I'm like five or six, and I'm having coffee. And she's like, don't tell your mom because I'm having coffee because it stunts your growth, right? And, and I thought that was this amazing thing. And it probably is where, because today, if you know me any at all, you're I still have a fond place in my heart for instant coffee, which is kind of weird because I'm a little bit of a coffee geek, coffee nerd. Um, I'm pretty particular about my coffee. I, I love fr- nothing like freshly roast, well-roasted beans that have been freshly ground, and then like you had outside if you had coffee here, and then you, you do the pour over right there. It's just in the morning, it's, oh, it's nothing like that in the world. 
except I still had this fond place in my heart for instant coffee. Every now and then, I'll have some. It just takes me back to when I'm five or six years old in that summer with the government block cheese toast. And it brings back all kinds of like warm, fuzzy memories. But the problem is, if you've only had instant coffee, if that's all that you've ever had in your life, then you haven't actually had real coffee. You've had a derivative of coffee. You've had something that's derived from or made from coffee, but it's not coffee in its freshest, purest, most best form that you can have it. And so if you, all you ever had is since the coffee, don't tell me you like or don't like coffee because you don't know what it tastes like yet. You need to have Tyson or somebody outside make you some real coffee. And then if you don't like it, that's totally fine. But then you know what real coffee tastes like. It's sort of like if you, if you, grew up, if you raised your kids and every morning you made them orange Kool-Aid and you told them this is orange juice. And they drank orange Kool-Aid, nothing wrong with orange Kool-Aid, but they, they drank orange Kool-Aid every morning for breakfast, and you told them this is orange juice. One day, when they get older, they are invited to a friend's house, they're going to see real orange juice, and they're going to taste real orange juice. And they're going to either have one or two reactions. One is, they're going to not believe that's orange juice, the real thing, because they've grown up on orange Kool-Aid and they've been told this is coffee. It's like growing up on only drinking instant coffee and being told that's real coffee. So they either think that you're lying to them that that's real OJ or, or they'll think that real OJ is terrible because their taste buds are only accustomed to orange Kool-Aid. And I'm afraid that's what many of us in here are like when it comes to church. There are many of us in this room who we've decided a long time ago that we don't like church. And that's usually because you and I have tasted a form of church that is not the real thing. It's a derivative. It's tied tangentially back to the real thing, like instant coffee, not really orange Kool-Aid, but this orange color. It's a derivative of the real thing. But it's not the real thing. And there's some of us in here who think that we like church. The problem is we are satisfied with the status quo. We're satisfied with the orange Kool-Aid or Tang or instant coffee instead of the real thing. And that's why us studying the book of Acts is so very important. Because it's taking us back to when the church was born to see what is the church really? What is it supposed to be? What is it, what is it really supposed to take like, taste like? Have we rejected a, a form of church that isn't the real thing? Or have we accepted something that is subpar, a derivative of the real thing, but isn't what it's really supposed to be, what it's really supposed to taste like and feel like? See, the church that we see in Acts is a church that only God can build. See, we as humans can build a church. We can build programs. Somebody can get up and be an entertaining speaker, somebody other than me. Somebody can get up and play cool music. We can have cool lights and a cool show and cool 
coffee and we can be very welcoming and we can communicate nicely with them. We can make it a place that you really want to come on Sunday morning and see and be a part of. We can program things, but we can't build the church that God has called us to be. Only God can build that church. And that's what we see over and over again in the book of Acts. We see in the, these opening few chapters how the work of spreading the gospel of Jesus, of convincing people of the truth and beauty of Jesus, of building the church is only accomplished by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why when Jesus, he had already died on the cross, he had already risen, he was hanging out with his disciples before he ascended back into heaven, and he told them, now go into all the world and preach the gospel, but before you do that, go to Jerusalem and wait. Why? Because you need to be endued or clothed with power from on high or the power of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish what I've called you to accomplish. You can't do it apart from that. And that's why we see things totally change in Acts chapter 2 when the disciples who had, re, who had previously failed Jesus over and over again, who had previously just never really got it, who were still kind of not, not quite even getting it after he was risen from the dead, we see all of a sudden a change in their lives and a change in their effectiveness when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they are clothed or filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. We see this new community that's born where they share all they have in common. There's not a needy person among them. And they're day by day gathering in the temple and gathering in their homes, breaking bread with each other. And the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. That's what we see when Peter last week and John were on their way to the temple to worship. And there was a lame man. Justin covered the text last week. There's a lame man and he's begging for alms. And Peter and John look at him and Peter says, hey, we don't have any silver and gold. We don't have any money. But what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And the lame man who has been lame from birth, he's over 40 years old, gets up and walks and it amazes people and a crowd is gathered. And they say, how did this happen? And Peter boldly proclaims the gospel of Jesus. He says, hey, you were even the people who were crying out for this Jesus to be killed. He was killed and he was killed for your sins. And immediately again, they're caught to the heart and they're more people added, so there's 5,000, at least 5,000 men who are now a part of the church in, in Jerusalem. So the church in Jerusalem, just a few days in, is now a mega church. It's like 10, 15,000 people or more here in Jerusalem. The mark of the church in Acts is that they are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the amazing works of God through Jesus. And here's the question for us this morning. Is that the mark of our lives? And is that the mark of our church? We're gonna see four things from this passage. We're gonna see the need of being filled, being filled with the Holy Spirit. The need of being filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean why we aren't and how it happens. The need, why we aren't, what it means, and how it happens. So once again, Peter and John, they've been on their way to the temple and they see the paralytic. He asks them for money. They, he is healed in the name of Jesus. A crowd gathers 
And then look in Acts chapter 4, in the, right in the beginning of this, verse 1, if you have your Bible. And as they were speaking to the people, that's Peter and John, they're explaining, they're proclaiming the, the good news of Jesus, even though it's not always good news to them. They first hear that you're the one who also called out for him to be killed, but that he died for your sins. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now notice here, it's just interesting, side note, that the leaders of the temple were not bothered that Peter and John had healed this man. That did not bother them. What bothered them is in whose name he was healed and in whose name they proclaimed afterwards when they asked What's going on? When people ask, what's going on here? How did this happen? And Peter and John proclaimed Jesus to them. That's what they didn't like. And they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Verse 3 And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, I just think this is interesting, by the way. Can you imagine this kind of altar call? A man is healed. Peter and John proclaim the gospel. The authorities come. They arrest them. And as they arrest them, people come to the Lord. And that just kind of interesting. Like, they saw something that was so real and so powerful and so joyous and so worthy that it did not matter to them to think that at the end of this day, if I followed the route of these people that have proclaimed the gospel to me, I might end up being arrested and imprisoned. But yet there was a joy and a, that was, and a glory that was greater to them than even the risk of this. And on the next day, verse 5, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had said to them, and then when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now think of what Peter and John must have been thinking and feeling at this time, because this looks and feels a lot like another scene that we saw at the end of the book of Luke when Jesus was called in front of the Sanhedrin and he was called in front of Caiaphas and Annas and they asked him, hey, by what authority? Why are you doing this? Now, Peter, what happened to Jesus? He was crucified. He was killed. So as Peter and John are standing there, they do not know how this trial is going to end. All they do know is that when their master had gone through a similar trial to this, it ended with his wrongful death. So Peter and John are standing there. They had to be feeling some amount of fear, some amount of anxiety. There had to be some thoughts going through their head. What if this is the end? What are my wife and kids going to do? How's my family going to go on? What are things going to be like? They've already been embarrassed by being arrested in front of the whole city of Jerusalem and being imprisoned overnight. Look what happens. Verse 8. Then Peter, note this term, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all 
of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That's pretty bold, isn't it? They could call for his death. They could turn him over like they did Jesus. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting a a psalm there, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He stands and he preaches boldly to the Sanhedrin the truth of who Jesus was. But how did he do it? He did it, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of the church, Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed or endued with power from on high or baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they were powerfully baptized in the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. They proclaimed the word. It went forth in power and thousands believed. Of day one, 3,000 souls joined the church. But the mission didn't end there and it wasn't supposed to. Jesus had told them to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. It was a great mission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But here's the thing I think is so powerful about this exchange that we see in Acts 4, 1 through 31, is that the disciples were not confused about where the power for this mission was going to come from. The disciples were not confused about where the power for this life, this new life they had received was going to come from. They knew that they had to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Verse 13, now when the Sadducees and the, uh, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty common guy. I like nice coffee, but I'm a pretty common guy. I'm not all that smart. I'm not all that educated. I don't have many talents and gifts and much going for me. You heard about where I come from. And I qualify, just as much as these disciples are qualified, to walk, to follow the footsteps of Jesus, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit by him to do the mission that he has called me to do in my life. And no matter how common or uneducated you may feel, you qualify But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Everybody knows this has happened. This man has been paralyzed for 40 years, and now he's healed. We can't deny it. But in order that that it may spread, verse 21, no further among the people, let us warn them 
to speak no more to anyone else in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered them, well, it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God. You must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, notice that word, threatened them. You don't, a, a, a group like the Sanhedrin does not threaten people lightly. They didn't say, you know, please don't do it, get out of here. They threatened them. We will do this, we will do this, we will do this if you continue. They, they were facing, if they continued, the loss perhaps of their, certainly of their reputation in the community, the loss of their livelihoods, maybe the loss of their lives if they continued. But then they released them, verse 23, and when they released them, here's what the disciples did. Peter and John, when they heard this, they had just been threatened. They spent overnight in jail. They don't know what the future is going to hold. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they, that's all the disciples, heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and prayed. And their prayer it's such a beautiful prayer. It starts off by acknowledging that God is the mighty, sovereign God over all of creation. It's interesting to me, they've just been threatened with their lives. They're gathering together, and they don't like open up with, all right, let's take requests. The majority of their prayer is focused on God. Do you know why that is? I think, number one, they were reminding themselves of how awesome and amazing God was. That the God who they served, the God who was theirs and who they belonged to, was mightier and greater than anybody else. He is the sovereign Lord over every other power, and he holds the world in the palm of his hands. And they were reminding themselves, this is the God that we serve. And they say, sovereign Lord, you said by your servant David... And he quotes the psalm. And they, they talk about how they were to gather together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. They're repeating the story. And now verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're asking God to fill them afresh and anew for the mission that he has called them to do. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit again. We'll get to that in a minute. And continue to speak the word of God with boldness. This prayer that they pray after they face the Sanhedrin and they're threatened with their lives and a livelihood, they go back and they pray. The, the heart of their prayer comes from the intersection of four great pressures that they're feeling. They're feeling, number one, they're feeling the, the, the pressure of the deadness of the human soul. 
that God has called them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, but that, that apart from God breathing upon a soul and helping them to open the eyes of the blind, to see the truth of the beauty of Jesus through the gospel, that the eyes of a natural man cannot understand it. It is foolishness to them. The, our hearts are naturally dead apart from God opening our eyes and breathing upon our soul to hear and understand the gospel and believe it and to be convinced of its truthfulness. So they need God to move upon people and move upon them if anyone is to be converted. They feel the force of the deadness of the human soul to God and they feel the force of opposition against them. Now, your life may not be as dramatic as what's going on with the disciples here. But our society, our world, our culture is dead set against Christ. And to say that you believe in Jesus publicly outside of Christian circles is to be looked at like you're foolish, like you're crazy. You, you, you believe your God uh, became a human, was born as a baby from a virgin, and there was like a star and angels, and he grew up and he was crucified and he rose again. And like, we don't see him because he went back up to heaven and he's coming back and he's riding a big white horse. Like, that's what you really believe? It sounds crazy to people outside. There's a force of opposition against us. And we feel that whether we acknowledge it or not, that in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our circles of friends, to stand up and proclaim and be believers and say that this is true is to be derided and looked at as foolish. They felt that pressure. Do you feel that pressure? They also felt the pressure of their utter weakness, the utter inability to do what God had called them to do. And I wonder if you and I feel that enough. Do you feel your weakness like at a really, really deep level? Do you realize that you are incapable to live the Christian life? Do you realize that apart from Christ, that you are a, a sinner, that you have no hope, that you have, that is to fulfill the mission that he's given us, we don't have the ability to do it, to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel? You try to share the gospel with maybe a family member or a friend and they looked you like you were crazy and you pretended the conversation didn't happen and you went on? Have you ever tried to convince somebody that, God is real and Jesus is true, that the Bible is real and true, you can't convince them of it. Do you feel your utter weakness to live the Christian life and then to fulfill the mission that he's given us? If we feel the pressure of the deadness of the human souls around us, of the force of opposition against us, of our utter weakness, and then above all or below all our utter desire for God to be glorified through Jesus. That's what pushed these disciples to this prayer. That's why most of this prayer is focused upon God. It was to remind them of his glory and his greatness, but also they're saying, look, this is not about us like maintaining a good reputation with people around us. It's not about us trying to prove that anything on our end, we want God to be glorified through Jesus. We want your name to go forward and people to hear it and to believe it. 
Do we desire, us in this room, do we desire that Jesus can be non-ignorable in our neighborhoods, in our circle of, of friends, in our families? To so many people around us, Jesus is absolutely and utterly ignorable. They're never confronted by the truthfulness or the power of his resurrection, of who he is and what he has done for them. The fact that they owe him all their lives. And it's our desire, our deepest desire below all things would be that God would be glorified through Jesus. That God would lift up the name of Jesus in our midst, in my life, in our midst, in our community, so that people would see him for the beautiful one that he is and not accept lesser things not accept orange Kool-Aid, not accept instant coffee, not accept the derivative of Christianity that they've probably come in contact with. People who culturally claim the name of Jesus and go to church on Sundays and, or occasionally and knock it off their list and move on and do whatever they wanna do. Instead of a people who are deeply indwelt and empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And see what happens when they feel these four pressures. They're pushed to pray. They feel the need to be freshly filled with the Holy Spirit because what, they need, what needed to be done could only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's to be, it's to be endued with his power to accomplish the work that we're called to do. In John 16, 8, Justin shared some from John 16 last week. In John 16, 8, Jesus says, when the, before that he says, it's good that I, sit, that I go away, that if I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. But in verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of the Lord is judged. The key word in that is that if I, if he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The, the word there is convict. In the, in the original language, it has kind of two sort of feelings. It has the, the sense of being convicted, like, like, I, like a negative, like I have done something wrong, I have wronged God, but on the other side, to be convinced. That's the positive side of it. To be convicted that I have wronged God, but yet to be convinced of the truthfulness of who God is, the truthfulness of who Jesus is and who, what he has done for me and, what, and that he should be my Lord and my God and only he can be my savior. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It means, to be, it means that we are enabled to proclaim effectively and demonstrate convincingly the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. If you're a believer this morning, you are called to live a life where you are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
That's what Jesus said in John chapter 7 and verse 38 and 39. He said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now we said this about the spirit whom he, those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He said that in response to someone who said, uh, when, when, he started, when he said that, when he, and after he got up and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So he's saying, whenever you come to me and you drink of who I am, you aren't just satisfied yourself. You are called to be a spring of living water for the people around you. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we are enabled to proclaim effectively. That means we're able to Number one, have the unction. It's an old word called unction. It means to feel the, the pressure and the push of, of desiring or needing to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of who he is, the desire to see him glorified. It means that we are anointed. So when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaim effectively, it means that we are anointed by the Holy Spirit. We're given his power and authority to proclaim the truth whether it's in a group setting or personally one-on-one, to proclaim to people the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. It means that it gives us authority and boldness. When people hear us, they, not an authority that comes from me, but an authority that comes from feeling and sensing the presence of the Holy Spirit as the word is being shared with people. Be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we proclaim effectively. It means that we demonstrate convincingly. It means our lives are in union or in harmony with the truth that we proclaim, that we believe. I think this is where a lot, a big crux in American Christianity comes. I think this is the orange Kool-Aid, instant coffee kind of thing. Is that, what do people say about Christians outside? I don't believe because you're what? You're hypocrites, right? Christians are hypocrites. And the truth is, that's oftentimes true. Our lives do not reflect the beauty that we see in Jesus Christ. Our lives do not reflect the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that we see in the life of Jesus and we see in the life of these early disciples. Our lives are often far removed from them. It's a derivative. It's somewhat familiar. We believe in the same Jesus. We proclaim the same truth. We read the same Bible, and yet it doesn't move us deeply enough for us, our lives, to live in obedience to him and to follow him. And so our lives look far different. I'm not talking about a perfect life. I'm talking about a life that reflects the power of Jesus, not your power. Not about how good a person you or I am, I don't want people to know how good a person I am. There's certain areas of my life I'm a pretty good guy, and there's certain areas of my life you probably already know if you know me very well, I'm a pretty crummy guy. I don't care about that. I want the people around me to see and taste and and smell and savor the presence and power of Jesus Christ that is inexplicable by my own personality, by my own intellect, by my own giftings or my own abilities. That can only come by the presence and power, the present filling 
of the Holy Spirit. I say a present filling because that's what we're called to do. These disciples who who here pray, God, you see the threats that are coming. Now respond, please. We're, we're pleading with you, God, and they're freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they go out and preach, proclaim with boldness once again. These are the same people who were back in the upper room in Acts chapter two when God's presence came. They had to be filled again. It's not something that happens once. It's something that happens over and over again. Uh, Paul, whenever he's writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, be filled. And the, the wording there, the, the, the Greek verb there is, is present. It means be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So when you become a believer, you have experienced a new birth, you're converted, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, just like the apostles were, the disciples were on the day of Pentecost. And that happens once for the believer. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit is something that should be happening, happening constantly and progressively and regularly for the rest of our lives. That's why these Disciples prayed and God responded with a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul had to command Christians, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't have to command them if it's something that happened just automatically. It's a continual need to be filled because we are continually in need. Now, real quickly, why aren't we? So that's the question, right? Why, why does my life not look like this? It, it may not look like this healing. It may not look like a crowd of 3,000 people come to him at one time, but why does my life not have the same savor and flavor and taste as we often see here, as we see here? We celebrate that God is at work among us. In the past four years as Doxa Church, he has been at work among us. He's done some amazing, awesome things. I think we have to also acknowledge a disconnect between this life that we see in the book of Acts and the life that most of us lead. Why is that? I think number one, similar to point one, we don't feel the weight of the deadness of a human soul apart from God. These disciples felt it and it pushed them to pray. We think lightly or none at all about the consequences of sin and death in the lives of our family and neighbors. You may know that they're not Christians, but does it really affect you and me, the consequences of their sin apart from Christ? That they are no different than I am apart that Christ stands between me and the wrath of God. I want that to happen for them too. We lack proper compassion for those who surround us. And we forget that it's only the work of the Holy Spirit that can bring a dead soul to life. I think we often don't live spirit-filled lives because we'd rather be comfortable or we'd rather be liked than to be filled. As Peter and John were standing here in front of the Sanhedrin. 
They were facing the, li- the loss of their reputation, facing the loss of their, perhaps of their livelihood if they continued this. They're facing perhaps the loss of their own lives. It was going to make their lives more complicated. It could make their wives and children's lives more complicated. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be submitted to him, to be submitted to Jesus, to be obedient to him. Think about it. First of all, Peter and John, their life was interrupted as they were on their way to the temple and the lame man called out. And for some reason, they had passed him by multiple days. This day, they felt an unction of the Holy Spirit to say, we don't have any silver or gold. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. It was embarrassing them, their families, to be arrested. They had no idea if they might be going the same route as Jesus. And it would have been scary, if not to them, certainly to their wives and kids. I think you and I, but they would rather be obedient and submitted to God than to be comfortable or to be liked by people. And I think if most of us in here are honest, that's really the truth for us too. We'd rather be comfortable than to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We'd rather be popular or well-liked or well-thought of by our peers and friends and family rather than to walk the spirit-filled life. We don't feel the great pressure of our utter weakness. Look at how the disciples responded to the threat of the authorities. How did they respond? They pray, they ask God, God, you are the only one that can do what needs to be done. And this is the truth. One of the things that Christianity, one of the beautiful things about it, one of the sweet things about it is it gives us an ability to embrace our own inadequacies because we see that God is adequate where I am not. Christ's sacrifice is adequate where I am not. And the Holy Spirit's presence and power in my life is adequate where I am not to fulfill the mission that he's called me to fulfill and to live the life that he's called me to live. And lastly, I think we often aren't filled because I don't think we really care about God's glory through Jesus. This is the last, but I think it's the biggest reason. It's this motivation that's underneath all of the events that we see transpire in this section. To the disciples, none of this was about them. The healing of the, of the lame man, the conversion of thousands, the opposition against them, the shaking of the room, none of this was about them. They were Their greatest prayer and the greatest desire, the driving force underneath all of their life was that God would be glorified through the person and work of Jesus. And until that drive and desire pushes every other drive and desire in our lives to the sidelines, we will accept instant coffee and tang and orange Kool-Aid instead of the real thing. Until the, the very basis of who I am, I care that God is glorified. That's the great ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when the, I send the Holy Spirit, he'll come and he will glorify me. So how 
does it happen? How do we live spirit-filled lives? How can we experience a, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives? First of all, by repentance. By repenting of what we would rather serve and things that we would rather glorify than Jesus of repenting of our desire of comfort and pleasure and being liked or popular as greater than him, his mission being fulfilled in my life and around me. Of repenting of not feeling the weight of the deadness of the human souls that surround me, the, the people, my neighbors. I'm thinking about my neighbors and my coworkers and my friends, some of them who I like and some of them, frankly, I'm not that crazy about, but they are people that have unique value as a human soul. And am I moved with the consequences that they face apart from Christ? Does my heart move with compassion for them? If not, I need to repent of that. We need to repent. And we need to pray, secondly. We need to have a personal season of prayer and a corporate season of prayer where we say, God, reveal to my heart. Maybe we already know, but God, here's where I'm failing. Here's, God, grant me repentance in these areas where I care more about them, more about my comfort, more about being liked, more about other things than about you and your mission and your glory. God, grant me repentance in this. And God, would you fill me afresh and anew? Would you fill us afresh and anew? with a fresh and powerful filling of your Holy Spirit. And would you not just fill us today, would you fill us tomorrow, and would you keep us aware of our absolute and utter dependence and weakness in ourselves apart from you? And thirdly, we repent, we pray, and then thirdly, we obey. We look at areas in our lives where we're in disobedience and not in alignment with, in our, with the, way that we sh- well, the way God has called me to live my life. And I turn in repentance and then I obey him and follow him. I give my life to his glory. I give my life to his mission. And I begin to proclaim the beautiful message of Jesus to my friends and to my neighbors, to my coworkers, trusting that as I do, that just as Peter and John met this man and they didn't know what would happen this day, whenever he asked them for some money, they didn't know what was gonna happen the next two days of their lives. But God showed up in that moment as they were in obedience and he did an amazing thing. And I pray our lives be marked by amazing appointments that God has for us as we obey him. As we're looking to him and following after him praying that Jesus would be glorified to the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School.
For more information about DoxaChurch, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.